oh my god you guys it's 2023 for whatever that's worth right so um surprise i decided to just throw out a little new year's bonus because i got to looking at a couple of things and there are traditions of new year's ghost stories i've done a episode on christmas ghost stories or should I say I was also looking at things that happened on New Year's, apparently. And of course, there's New Year's Eve traditions and New Year's Day traditions like Hogmanay, you know, first footing, um, opening your windows, letting out all the bad and the good in, etc., etc., etc. But, you know, those are easy. I already just listened to a podcast where people did that, so I'm not going to copy that. I just pulled up some things really quickly. You know, Googling for you, use my Google Foo skills uh, to do a little New Year's Day thing. So I'm going to start out at, no wait, no wait, before I do that, I must tell you, please, please, please visit PinkySwearPress.com. That is my official website. I am an author, among other things. I have new releases out, Dark Wings is one of my most recent, as well as the Omnibus, an entire five book series that I redid all into one giant mega volume. And it's five books, did I just say that? And it's got vampires. Do you like vampires? Do you like sexy men, smexy, schmexy? We used to say schmexy. You can find that on Amazon. It's the Paris Immortal Eternal Edition. If you're not sure if you want to commit to the entire thing, the very first one is available for 99 cents. And that's a Paris Immortal, a vampire tale. But the Kindle of the Omnibus is only $9.99. That's for five books, y'all, okay? And the big Omni, it's a giant book. So yes, it's like $35 because that shit was hard, okay? That took a long time because I rewrote, you know, by hand. I retyped. I didn't rewrite the entire story, but you know. I put it all in by hand. I didn't just copy paste files or put files together is what I'm saying. Okay, I got that business out of the way. Support your small businesses, your local businesses. I'm a barber and I do some art and uh, all kinds of things. Just ask me. Okay, there. That's my way of starting the new year. Don't be afraid to plug yourself. <laughs> all right, now where was I? Are we ready? New Year's Eve, 2011. My eerie start to 2012. I didn't have much planned on New Year's Eve. My friend Aaron was having a family party, so he invited me and two other friends to join in. Me, Aaron, Nat, and Anthony are chilling in his basement. At around 9.30, Aaron gets a text from a number he doesn't recognize. It says, Yo, I'm outside. So he goes outside to check and finds that no one's there. He comes down and asks if we have that number in our phones, and none of us do. A little while after, Nat gets a text from the same number. It says, Yo, I'm outside. She replies, Where are you? And then she gets a text back saying, Turn around. We were all in the basement together, and clearly no one was behind her. So we figured that someone was trying to prank us. At around 10.45 p.m., I get the text, Yo, I'm outside. Same number. Now I'm really curious and I want to figure out who this person is. I text back, all right, I'm coming out. I promptly get a text back saying, 
I'm already inside. Fast forward to around 12.10 a.m. We're upstairs with everyone else watching the NBC New Year show. I decide to text this person. Happy New Year. Love you. XOXO. I did this just to get some sort of reaction, hoping they'd reveal themselves. But I get no reply. Until around 1 a.m. And I'm sitting on my friend's couch playing games on my phone. It said, I'm waiting by your car. I didn't think too much of it. I just text back, what's my license plate number? It took a few minutes to get a reply which said, you drive a Honda, right? Big deal. Lots of people drive Hondas. At around 1.30 a.m., I'm putting on my shoes to leave and I get another text. I'm ready to leave now. Are you? No, I can't lie. That was a timely text, so I got a little rattled. But I put on my shoes and went out the door. I had to drop off Anthony and Nat. So we walked to my car, and before going in, I checked the back seats and the surrounding area. Nothing in sight. We get in the car. Here's where things get creepy. Now, I could have made a three-point turn and drove out the way I came in, but I was too lazy to reverse. I drove straight, thinking that I knew the area well enough to make the proper turns to get out. I ended up making a right turn prematurely, and I quickly realized I made the wrong turn. My phone vibrated in my jacket pocket, and I got a text. You're going the wrong way. I was shook. I stopped on the side of the road. I wasn't lost or anything. I'm in the suburbs, after all. I just made the wrong turn. I stayed put until a couple of cars passed me. I turned to the back seat and asked if Nat or Anthony were playing around, and they said they have no idea what's going on. So I tried to put that behind me and continue driving. We come to a stop sign where we have to make a turn onto the main road. Anthony's house is on the left. I decide to turn right. As I'm driving, Anthony says, what the hell are you doing? I tell him, I just want to see what happens. I drive about a kilometer up and turn into an empty parking lot in a plaza. I do a big circle and then come out the way I came in. I'm a little relieved at this point, so I pull out and head towards Anthony's house. And then my pocket vibrated again. Stop with the detours. I'm still here. I was shook. I turned off my phone and left it at that. I didn't drive all the way home. I asked if I could chill at Anthony's for a bit, but I ended up sleeping over. What creeped me out was the timeliness of all the texts, but what sealed the deal was the punctuation and grammar. I know that sounds silly, but friends don't really text like that. Edit. So whoever this person is knew that me, Nat, Anthony, and Aaron were together. Edit two. I got a new phone when it came out and didn't want to carry that number over. But up until then, I had the number on my phone for show and tell. I hated scrolling through my convos and seeing that number. People who I've told the story to have always tried to call the number, but they get a message saying that the number doesn't exist. I haven't dived too deep into this. On one hand, I felt that something really bad could happen if I kept probing it, and nothing has happened so far. But on the other hand, I don't have any closure, and sometimes I get paranoid about getting another message. Edit 3. I just remembered that I do have my old phone in my closet still. If you got serious skills, shoot me a message. And that is from Reddit and is 
reportedly a true story. And by their spelling and the fact that they said kilometers, this is clearly maybe Canada or who knows where. I don't know where. Could be Europe. I'm just uh, skimming through the threads just to see what anybody said in the comments. And there's nothing really, nothing to add to the story, actually. But it's it, that's a good one. And if it's true, like, that's really creepy. And someone made the joke, though, because the poster at the end said something about Liam Neeson. And they're telling them, of course, to text back, I will find you. And I will kill you. <laughs> but uh, how do you like that? How do you like that? Ba -da -da. Okay, sorry, couldn't resist. Been way up into the K-pop lately. Shall we continue before I completely destroy the creepy mood? Another New Year's Day tale. The Old Belfry. The Old Belfry stood apart from the church. An octagon-shaped building terminating in a squat, ungainly spire, it contained only two rooms. The room which occupied the whole of the ground floor was used as a lumber room. The room above was known as the rope room. A similar winding stair ran from the ground floor to a vault-like chamber below. The older generation of bell ringers had firmly believed the belfry to be haunted. No one had actually claimed to have seen the ghost, but when the subject was mentioned to one of them, he would look wise and shake his head with an expression that was meant to convey an idea that he knew something but would not tell. One man who, so it was said, could have told something definite if he wished, had recently taken leave of his senses and was no longer active in their circle. None of the old bell ringers would have ventured alone into the building after dark. Not one of them had ventured down the winding stairs that led to the vault below. Some of them may have been curious to know what it contained or whether it contained anything, but their superstition overcame their curiosity. The younger men who had supplanted the older generation of bell ringers laughed at the superstition of their predecessors. Still, not one of them displayed any curiosity to explore the recesses of the old building. They spent most of their time in the rope room and were apparently quite oblivious of the chamber underneath the building. The belfry was an eerie, dismal old place even in the daytime. To those who understood such things, it was an ideal place for a ghost's habitation. The exterior presented age-stained, weather-scarred walls. The interior was cheerless, barren, and uninviting. There were long, narrow, stained glass windows on the ground floor and in the rope room, but the glass was covered with dust and the sun rays that succeeded in filtering through the dust-covered figures of saints hardly dispersed the gloom of the place. One New Year's Eve at 11 o'clock, a merry party of young men, all more or less expert campanologists, were seated on benches round the walls of the rope room in the old belfry. They had taken part with the wild, unrestrained mob who paraded the city streets, making the night hideous with blasts from tin trumpets and shrieking whistles, and indulging in rough horseplay. They had also imbibed pretty freely and were waiting to usher in the new year with merry peals from the bells. As they passed a wine bottle round, they sang a discordant dirge for the parting year and laughed uproariously at what they thought to be the quaint humor of it. Though young in years, these men were experienced ropers, and their potations seemed to have taken little effect on them. To them, the ringing in of the new year was a huge joke, 
and they passed many ribald jokes concerning it. One of that merry company, John Greaves, who was younger and less experienced than his companions, had mixed his drinks unwisely before coming to the belfry, and was consequently in a state of half-stupid, maudlin inebriety. Unnoticed by the others, he took a candle, left the rope room, and staggered down the winding stairs. When he reached the ground floor, he struck a match, lit his candle, and, muttering incoherently to himself, sought the steps that led to the vault below. His metal brain had conceived the idea of doing what he never would have thought of doing in his sober state, even in broad daylight. He had decided to explore the mysterious chamber. He stumbled down the stone steps and reached a small landing, pushing open a heavy door which creaked dismally on its rusty hinges. He entered the vault. The place was empty. It was a square cell with a flagged floor. The walls were dry but covered with a thick layer of dust and cobwebs. The floor appeared to have been recently swept. Although the night was mild, the place exuded a musty, earthly smell, and it seemed as cold as death. Greaves uttered a fatuous laugh, muttered something to himself, and was about to return to his companions when a sudden draught of ice-cold air extinguished his candle. He took a step forward, his toe caught in something, and he stumbled and fell. After several vain attempts to rise and much incoherent expostulation, in snuggled in close to the cold, dusty stone wall and fell asleep. Then he dreamed... He sat in the vault in inky darkness. Why he was there or how he came there, he did not know. Heavy footsteps sounded on the stone steps, and two monks in black habits and cowls entered the chamber. One of them carried a lantern and stood near the door. They did not appear to notice Greaves, and he cowered closer to the wall out of the reach of the rays of the lantern. The monk advanced to the center of the floor and, pushing an iron bar through one of the large flags, lifted it and disclosed a square hole. Quaking with fear, John Greaves watched with fascinated eyes. The monks descended through the opening in the pavement. He could hear the scraping sound of their feet descending a ladder. He sat still for several moments, wondering what would happen next. He could hear the murmur of voices, but he could not distinguish the words. And the voices ceased. Then came the thud of a pick, followed by the unmistakable sound of a shovel throwing up earth. Impelled by an irresistible curiosity, which overcame his fear, he crawled to the opening and peered below. He saw one of the monks digging a hole in the soft ground floor of what appeared to be a cellar. The other, by the feeble light of the lantern, examined the emaciated, ghastly face of a corpse clad in a monk's habit. Fearing they might look up and see him, John Greaves crept back and cowered against the wall. After a time, the sound of the pick and shovel ceased. Again he heard the murmur of voices. Then came a dull thud, as though some heavy body had fallen on soft earth. John Greaves shivered. He knew the monks had thrown the corpse into the hole they had dug. For a few seconds all was quiet again. The silence was broken by the sound of a voice clear and distinct. Requiem eternam dona es, domine, it said. It looks perpetua. Le site is, another voice responded. John Greaves realized the monks were reciting a burial service over the corpse, over their dead brother. 
He heard the Paternoster and other prayers recited, and the thud of the earth and the scraping sound of the shovel as they filled the grave. Then he woke, turned over, made some incoherent remark, and went to sleep again. The clang of bells when the hour of midnight struck failed to wake him. Long after they had ceased to ring, he woke again. He had a vague consciousness that something very cold and damp had brushed his face. He rubbed his eyes and stretched himself. Some seconds passed before he realized where he was, but he had not the remotest idea of how he came there. He fumbled in his pockets, found a match, lit it, and recovered his candle. The wick sputtered for a second and then burned brightly. His dream came back vividly to his mind. He examined the flags that composed the floor of the chamber, but could not find trace of the iron ring in any one of them. He was sobered now and full of apprehension, but he could not withdraw his fascinated eyes from the floor. It was then a flag in the center of the room began to rise inch by inch with unfaltering and terrifying progress. Finally, it assumed the perpendicular and then fell back, making no sound, and disclosed a square opening. A monk, clad in black, earth-stained habit and cow, slowly emerged from the aperture. His parchment-like skin was drawn tight over the bones of his fleshless face. He carried a wooden crucifix in his hands, his eyes glowing strangely and sucked deep into their hollow orbits were fixed on the figure of the crucifix. His white lips drawn over the teeth moved but no sound came from them. John Greaves knew he was praying. He went to the door and passed out. John, fascinated, involuntarily followed him. The monk went slowly up the winding stone stairs, passed across the room on the ground floor, and ascended the steps to the rope room. He went straight to the rope that hung from the tenor bell. He placed the crucifix carefully in his girdle and, taking hold of the rope, pulled it. John Greaves, with bulging eyes and mouth agape, watched the slack of the rope glide up through the hole in the wooden ceiling like a sinuous snake, but no sound followed. The big bell did not ring. After an interval of several seconds, the monk pulled the rope again. He was ringing a passing bell, ringing it for himself, but no sound came from the bell above. John Greaves did not wait to see any more. He ran down the stone steps, and finding the door leading to the street ajar, he rushed out and slammed it after him. He never ran faster in his life than he ran from the belfry to his home on that New Year's morning. He could never be induced to go near the place afterwards, not even in the daytime. A week later, a priest was surprised to receive an envelope containing two sovereigns and a note requesting him to say mass for the repose of the soul of an unknown monk. John Greaves kept what he had seen a close secret until some years after when, near to the church, he passed a procession of monks, heads cowled and bowed, when the last had straightened his neck to reveal a familiar face. That very same day, the belfry was destroyed by fire. What do you think? Could be a true story? Might not be a true story. And now I have one from Slavic fairy tales. 
the twelve months. There was once a widow who had two daughters, Helen, her own child by her dead husband, and Marukla, his daughter by his first wife. She loved Helen, but hated the poor orphan because she was far prettier than her own daughter. Marukla did not think about her good looks and could not understand why her stepmother should be angry at the sight of her. The hardest work fell to her share. She cleaned out the rooms, cooked, washed, sewed, spun, wove, brought in the hay, milked the cow, and all of this without any help. Helen, meanwhile, did nothing but dress herself in her best clothes and go to one amusement after another. But Marukla never complained. She bore the scoldings and bad temper of her mother and sister with a smile on her lips and the patience of a lamb. But this angelic behavior did not soften them. They became even more tyrannical and grumpy, for Marukla grew daily more beautiful, while Helen's ugliness increased. So the stepmother determined to get rid of Marukla, for she knew that while she remained, her own daughter would have no suitors. Hunger, every kind of privation, abuse, Every means was used to make the girl's life miserable. But in spite of it all, Marukla grew ever sweeter and more charming. One day in the middle of winter, Helen wanted some wood violets. Listen, cried she to Marukla, you must go up the mountain and find me the violets. I want some to put in my gown. They must be fresh and sweet-scented, do you hear? But, my dear sister... Who ever heard of violets blooming in the snow, said the poor orphan. You wretched creature! You dare disobey me, said Helen. Not another word! Off with you! If you do not bring me some violets from the mountain forest, I will kill you. The stepmother also added her threats to those of Helen, and with vigorous blows they pushed Marukla outside and shut the door upon her. The weeping girl made her way to the mountain. The snow lay deep, and there was no trace of any human being. Long she wandered hither and thither and lost herself in the wood. She was hungry and shivered with cold, and she prayed to die. Suddenly she saw a light in the distance and climbed towards it till she reached the top of the mountain. Upon the highest peak burned a large fire surrounded by twelve blocks of stone, on which sat twelve strange beings. Of these the first three had white hair, and three were not quite so old, three were young and handsome, and the rest younger still. There they all sat silently looking at the fire. They were the twelve months of the year. The great January was placed higher than the others. His hair and mustache were white as snow, and in his hand he held a wand. At first Marukla was afraid, but after a while her courage returned, and drawing nearer she said, Men of God, may I warm myself at your fire? I am chilled by the winter cold. The great January raised his head and answered, What brings thee here, my daughter? What dost thou seek? I am looking for violets, replied the maiden. This is not the season for violets. Dost thou not see the snow everywhere, said January? I know well, but my sister Helen and my stepmother have ordered me to bring them violets from your mountain. If I would return without them, they will kill me. I pray you, good shepherds, tell me where they may be found. Here the great January arose and went over to the youngest of the months and, placing his wand in his hand, said, Brother March, do thou take the highest place? March obeyed, at the same time waving his wand over the fire. 
Immediately the flames rose towards the sky. The snow began to melt and the trees and shrubs to bud. The grass became green and from between its blades peeped the pale primrose. It was spring and the meadows were blue with violets. Gather them quickly, Marukla, said March. Joyfully she hastened to pick the flowers and having soon a large bunch, she thanked them and ran home. Helen and the stepmother were amazed at the sight of the flowers, the scent of which filled the house. Where did you find them? said asked Helen. Under the trees on the mountainside, said Marukla. Helen kept the flowers for herself and her mother. She did not even thank her stepsister for the trouble she had taken. The next day she desired Marukla to fetch her strawberries. Run, said she, and fetch me strawberries from the mountain. They must be very sweet and ripe. But who ever heard of strawberries ripening in the snow, exclaimed Marukla. Hold your tongue, worm. Don't answer me. If I don't have my strawberries, I will kill you, said Helen. Then the stepmother pushed Marukla into the yard and bolted the door. The unhappy girl made her way toward the mountain and to the large fire round which sat the twelve months. The great January occupied the highest place. "'Men of God, may I warm myself at your fire? "'The winter cold chills me,' she said, drawing near. "'The great January raised his head and asked, "'Why comest thou here? What dost thou seek?' "'I am looking for strawberries,' said she. "'We are in the midst of winter,' said January. "'Strawberries do not grow in the snow.' "'I know,' said the girl sadly. "'But my sister and stepmother have ordered me to bring them strawberries. "'If I do not, they will kill me.' Pray, good shepherds, tell me where to find them. The great January rose, crossed over to the month opposite him, and putting the wand in his hand said, Brother June, do thou take the highest place. June obeyed, and as he waved his wand over the fire, the flames leaped toward the sky. Instantly the snow melted, the earth was covered with verdure, trees were clothed with leaves, birds began to sing, and various flowers blossomed in the forest. It was summer. Under the bushes, masses of star-shaped flowers changed into ripening strawberries, and instantly they covered the glade, making it look like a sea of blood. "'Gather them quickly, Marukla,' said June. Joyfully, she thanked the months, and having filled her apron, ran happily home. Helen and her mother wondered at seeing the strawberries, which filled the house with their delicious fragrance. "'Where did you find them?' asked Helen. "'Right up among the mountains.' Those from under the beech trees are not bad, answered Marukla. Helen gave a few to her mother and ate the rest herself. Not one did she offer her stepsister. Being tired of strawberries on the third day, she took a fancy for some fresh red apples. Run, Marukla, she said, and fetch me fresh red apples from the mountain. Apples in winter, sister. Why, the trees have neither leaves nor fruit. Idle thing, go this minute, said Helen. Unless you bring back apples, we will kill you. As before, the stepmother seized her roughly and turned her out of the house. The poor girl went weeping up the mountain, across the deep snow, and on toward the fire round which were the twelve months. Motionless they sat there, and on the highest stone was the great January. Men of God, may I warm myself at your fire? The winter cold chills me, she said, drawing near. The great January raised his head. Why comest thou here? What dost thou seek? asked he. I am come to look for red apples, replied Marukla. 
but this is winter and not the season for red apples observed the great january i know answered the girl but my sister and stepmother sent me to fetch red apples from the mountain if i return without them they will kill me thereupon the great january arose and went over to one of the elderly months to whom he handed the wand saying brother september do thou take the highest place September moved to the highest stone and waved his wand over the fire. There was a flare of red flames. The snow disappeared, but the fading leaves which trembled on the trees were sent by a cold northeast wind in yellow masses to the glade. Only a few flowers of autumn were visible. At first Marukla looked in vain for red apples. Then she espied a tree which grew at a great height, and from the branches of this hung the bright red fruit. September ordered her to gather some quickly. The girl was delighted and shook the tree. First one apple fell and then another. That is enough, said September. Hurry home. Thanking the months, she returned joyfully. Helen and the stepmother wondered at seeing the fruit. Where did you gather them? asked the stepsister. There are more on the mountaintop, answered Marukla. Then why did you not bring more? said Helen angrily. You must have eaten them on your way back, you wicked girl. No, dear sister, I have not even tasted them, said Marukla. I shook the tree twice. One apple fell each time. Some shepherds would not allow me to shake it again, but told me to return home. Listen, mother, said Helen, give me my cloak. I will fetch some more apples myself. I shall be able to find the mountain and the tree. The shepherds may cry, stop, but I will not leave go till I have shaken down all the apples. In spite of her mother's advice, she wrapped herself in a pelisse, put on a warm hood, and took the road to the mountain. Snow covered everything. Helen lost herself and wandered hither and thither. After a while, she saw a light above her and, following its direction, reached the mountain top. There was the flaming fire, the twelve blocks of stone, and the twelve months. At first she was frightened and hesitated. Then she came nearer and warmed her hands. She did not ask permission nor did she speak one polite word. "'What hath brought thee here? "'What dost thou seek?' said the great January. "'I am not obliged to tell you, O Greybeard. "'What business is it of yours?' she replied, "'turning her back on the fire and going toward the forest. "'The great January frowned and waved his wand over his head. "'Instantly the sky became covered with clouds, the fire went down, and snow fell in large flakes, an icy wind howled round the mountain. Amid the fury of the storm, Helen stumbled about. The police failed to warm her benumbed limbs. My mother kept on waiting for her. She looked from the window, she watched from the doorstep, but her daughter came not. The hours passed slowly, but Helen did not return. Can it be that the apples have charmed her from her home, thought the mother. Then she clad herself in hood and pelisse and went in search of her daughter. Snow fell in huge masses. It covered all things. For long she wandered hither and thither. The icy northeast wind whistled in the mountain, but no voice answered her cries. Day after day Marukla worked and prayed and waited, but neither stepmother nor sister returned. They had been frozen to death on the mountain. The inheritance of a small house, a field, and a cow fell to Marukla. 
In the course of time, an honest farmer came to share them with her, and their lives were happy and peaceful. The moral of the story, obviously, is don't be that bitch. <laughs> Just don't be a bitch. Be kind. All right. But, you know, sometimes you do have to be that bitch. Okay. I wanted to finish with that because I thought it was kind of charming, especially with the months. I think it was very appropriate for a New Year's Day sort of thing. And if you're uh, of a pagan persuasion, you might have particularly enjoyed that. I, I thought it was, you know, to me it felt like that. A, a turning of seasons and the wheel and, and years, etc. And that, my friends, is my little New Year's Day special, little bonus. I hope you enjoyed it. Just just a short, sweet one to kick off, kick off 2023. Uh, I'm not going to make any resolutions. I think intentions can be nice or, you know, things that you hope for in the year. But I don't think that you should beat yourself up if you don't accomplish them. I think that's why I don't like resolutions. People like, I resolve to do this. I resolve to do that. And there's something just more disappointing about it when you don't, I guess. I don't know. Kind of rambling. Thank you for listening. I'm not sure when my next episode will be. I had said on the Christmas special that, you know, I was going to take a, you know, carry on with my break for a while. Um, if, a, if, if a subject pops up, maybe I'll just do it. But probably by the time I come back, I might pause so I can work up an actual legitimate fourth season. I've been going on this season three for a long time. My seasons are completely uneven. <laughs> like my first one was like short and then the same, you know, whatever. They just felt right at the time. But until next time, happy new year. Have a good one. Be kind to yourself. Dare to dream. Be yourself and don't let anyone else give you shit for it. You do you. I, I know that phrase is kind of overused, but really just be you. And don't be afraid to be you. That's one of my things for this year is to continue to just let my whole authentic self out there and not worry whether people like it or not. There's, there's a saying that I like. It's none of my business what other people think about me. I think that we should all remember that. The internet, strangers, you know, stuff like that. The person at the grocery store that maybe glared at you and said something crappy. Who knows what's going on in their life? It's not personal. I've uh, reminded myself that for for a long time now, you know, and sometimes I have to remind myself right in the moment that, you know what, it's not even about me. So just do your thing. Be happy out there. Create, work, don't work. Give yourself some days off, whatever it is you need to do. Hug a dog, a cat, you know, pet a bunny rabbit. I don't know, whatever. But... Let's have some joy. There's so much hate in the world, right? Let's have some joy. And in there's enough of my sappy rambling. I don't care. I don't care if it's sappy. Let's be joyful. The light is coming back to the, the world with the sun, literally, and everything else. Let's bring it on back, yo. And don't forget to go to pinkyswearpress.com and buy my books. Okay, and they're also on Kindle Unlimited if you have that. P.S. I've made like 10, 12 
playlists on Spotify in the last 36 hours or something since I finally went all in on Spotify. Oh, might have some soundtracks for things. <laughs> all right. And like I said, don't be that bitch. Unless, of course, you're going to be that bitch. You know, the good kind. Okay, bye-bye.